Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It's July 18th. I'm Kyle Rizal. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, one show, one topic. Uh, we're going to talk 2024, the election that has already started, which still, even though my entire adult life, it's starting earlier and earlier. I can't even believe it. Anyway, we're going to talk about how some of these candidates are running, specifically the candidates that are running on uh, racist, discriminatory, hateful platforms or uh, subjects or rhetoric. Take your pick. Um, and and what we do about that and how we got here, I guess. Yeah, and that is what Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry writes about in his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. And he's here to make us smarter about basically how white racist aggression impacts everything from our elections to our economy. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to try to make us smarter. Yeah. Let's not oversell. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's relevant to my first question, then. Who is this book even for? And I guess I, I suppose you could break that down into who do you think is going to read it and who do you hope will read it? Sure. I think that I think that in covering issues of race and justice, one of the things I always think about and attempt to work on is telling these stories, not necessarily for the choir that's already paying attention to them and following them very closely, folks who are hyper-plugged in into conversations about issues of race and justice, but rather aiming at a bigger and broader and more general audience. Now, that said, you know, I don't think the work of a journalist or historian is necessarily convincing or persuasion, right? It's just to document things accurately. Um, and so it's not a book that makes an argument. Rather, it's just a book that kind of lays out what we have lived through over the last uh, decade and a half since the election of, a of our first black president, right? And looking at the ways in which uh, our majority white populace has radicalized following that, how we see the change in their poll and how they show up in polling in terms of levels of racial animus, um, but then also how that has propelled and empowered a really avowedly racist movement and increased the level of violence that we're seeing from white supremacists, right? And so, so all of this, this political and social moment that we're in is costing real people their lives. You, um, you start actually with just with reference to, to uh, Obama and, you know, the decade and a half or however long it's been since he was elected. You start in Grant Park on election night. Um, and you sort of lay out the mood in Grand Park that night. You call it a, a night of unabashed hope, uh, which it was. Um, and then you, you talk about how the years of Obama's presidency sort of unleashed and engendered um, the, the evilness of, of two racial movements in this country. And I want you to explain what those are. Sure. We, we see the election of a black president. And we immediately start to see a rise in a politically nativist movement to oppose uh, that president. Uh, we see now, granted, this is building on it's not as if the election of Barack Obama is a day one, right? right? The world existed and our politics existed before that. We we're already living in a moment of heightened anxiety around immigration and specifically around the demographic change in the country being driven by Hispanic immigration. And we see the rise of a very powerful political movement that seeks to uh, prevent the Obama administration 
from fulfilling any of its campaign promises or or its um, its uh, its pledges. Um, and that rallies around this idea, first, that the president is illegitimate, that he's secretly a Kenyan Muslim, that he's not really from here or born here, uh, that the country has been changed, he's a secret socialist, all these, all these ideas, almost all of which were at the very least thinly veiled, but in many cases extremely explicit in the way they played to nativism and xenophobia about the fact that a man named Barack Hussein Obama had been elected the president. Um, and, and so we see the rise of that movement that's aided and abetted by a more mainstream politics. You have people like Mitch McConnell saying, you know, our aim is to make him a one-term president to, to obstruct anything he's trying to do. Um, but then you start to see the rise of an anti-racist movement, right? Which we think of and talk about as Black Lives Matter. We see people taking to the streets. We see um, extreme pressure on the Obama administration to uh, be more progressive and more liberal and more aggressive on issues uh, to remedy racial inequities in our country. Um, that in turn further powers the nativist movement, right? There's a tug of war between these things. Now, as all of this is happening, there's another movement that's been sitting here forever, right? And it's the movement of avowed white supremacists. Right. People who truly believe there needs to be a race war, that there is a biological distinction between races and that white Americans are being threatened physically right now. All this is conspiracy theory and, and hatred, but that it's a real movement that exists. Now, they get very excited about the idea that now millions, tens of millions of white Americans are increasingly anxious about demographic change and being fed this type of political rhetoric and messaging that demonizes a black president, that is hysterical about immigration and refugees, right? That all of these things play to their hand and helps them radicalize people into their movement as well. You do talk quite a bit about immigration and how that sort of fits into the the white lash, because I know very recently, especially since the murder of George Floyd, the backlash against, you know, the anti-racist movement has been very focused on, you know, anti-blackness. But you write that immigration is very much tied into it. And I, I saw in a Politico interview that you did, you said fear of immigration is an economic fear, but it's also about fear of the other. And those things can be pretty hard to separate. Well, certainly, right? It's this idea that we are here now and that as more people come in, it will increase a competition for resources, for jobs, for access to education, right? And so I want to look out for who's here, not for those other people, right? That That's definitionally, when we think back historically, right, that is the root of a lot of the tension and anxiety at a lot of xenophobia and a lot of nativism, right? It's like, let's build, let's build our castle and build our moat and build our wall and not let those other people come in here to get what we have. And we, we see that uh, playing out. Right. Again, we see the election of a of a president, an openly nativist president, whose campaign whose chief campaign pledges is that he's going to build a castle wall at our border to keep brown people from coming in, and he's gonna ban all Muslims from coming into the country. Right? It's like the most openly nativist policy proposals we've seen in our modern history. And and sure, he's saying he's going to do those things in part because he believes because he's saying they're going to fix the economy and that's how I bring the jobs back. Right. But you can't actually divide those things and split those things evenly. Right. The reason they're compelling messages is because 
right? That people believe that, that is a means to securing or improving their own economic fortunes because they worry and blame those other people as being the ones who are threatening them. One of the things that struck me as I was as I was reading this book was the speed at which we went from that night in Grant Park to, um, you know, fundamentally to Trump coming down the elevator in 2015, and it got worse from there. And I guess I, I wonder if you're as, I guess the title of the book does it, right? American white lash. I mean, white lash implies like a speed, like you get whiplash and it happens so fast. And I guess I, I wonder what your take is on, on how and why it all happened so fast. Sure. Well, and like I said, I think part of that is that it, it doesn't start at zero, right? You've already got some buildup. You've already got background that these ideas have, have been percolating and, and happening in our politics well before the election of a black president, right? And again, our immigration fights, we look at how during the 2000s, immigration becomes such a central issue in our politics in a way that it had not been in uh, pretty recent decades, right? That this is a shift. And, and all of that is starting to seed ground uh, to this battleground. Uh, we also, of course, have the economic downturn and we've got unpopular wars, right? The, the, that there was a thrashing happening in the 2000s that really created an environment uh, where you had a lot of people feeling very anxious, feeling very insecure, not sure what was going on, and therefore were very susceptible to this idea that the country had been taken from them or stolen from them or that they were now going to become, you know, the losers of, of history. And I think that all of those things aid the speed with which all of this plays out. Yeah. There was a quote or something, and I'm going to mess it up badly, where it was like, <laughs> if you're used to living in privilege you know, equality looks like an attack or something like that. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that um, you highlight a lot in this book that really I think about often is this idea of how common it is that people try to present these terrible acts of racism and violence as sort of the lone wolf um, mm. or a one-off as opposed to it being a function of the system. How do you even begin to get people to change that narrative? Sure. I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think the lone wolf framing really, um, it really does us a disservice to our understanding of what's happening and, and to our ability to respond to it. Right. When you look at the white supremacist movement, for example, they have written the, the ideological leaders of this movement have been writing since the 80s that their plan and their hope is for these individual acts of resistance, what they call leaderless resistance, right? They are no longer building these hierarchical structures where it's one big, you know, Ku Klux Klan central and everyone sends in for a membership card, right? <laughs> that their entire aim is to is to proselytize through the media, through the internet, through popular politics, right? And then create a space that individuals can become radicalized and, and that they will know what to do. And we see this. We see this with Timothy McVeigh in the 90s. We see this mm -hmm. with Dylan Roof in Charleston. We see this with the shooters in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, as well as the top supermarket in Buffalo. These are individuals who are who because of the politics of our moment, and I would argue in part because of the irresponsibility of the politics of, of those various moments, go seeking out information 
find these these dark white supremacist, racist, bigoted places in our discourse, become converted. And they don't need anyone to give them marching orders. They understand what they are supposed to do. And so are they lone wolves in so much as they are not the second vice president of an organization that laid out an action plan? Sure, right? But they are behaving as part of a bigger and broader movement that is, its entire tactic is to inspire such people, right? That we, when we think about Charleston and Dylan Roof, this is a young white kid in South Carolina who is following mainstream media coverage of Trayvon Martin's death, starts Googling, quote unquote, black on white crime statistics, finds himself on white supremacist websites, and before long is massacring black worshipers in a church and writing a manifesto about the quote Jewish problem, right? Yeah. And so we can call Dylan Roof a lone wolf if we so desire, right? But he is the dream come true of decades of this movement that has purposely put all this information out there and told them what to do. It's the reason why all these guys write the same manifestos in the exact same way, because there is an action plan that they're taking off of the shelf. One, excuse me, one of the great enablers of, of the rise of the Republican Party under Donald Trump and that brand of nativism uh, and racism was, in addition to the Republican base, the media, which from 2015 to later than it should have been in the Trump presidency, didn't know what to do or was afraid to do what was right, which is to call a fact a fact and not being afraid of, of being called partisan when you're talking about facts. I, I guess my question to you is, as an observer of this and, and as a member of, of the media, um, what are your hopes for 2024? Yeah, I, I think that my hope would have been that we collectively would have learned. <laughs> it's it's bad. It's bad, it's bad. That phrasing troubles would me, but, but please go on. I, I'm already caveat. Uh, yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. right? Like, you know, I, I hope would have been that we would have learned our lesson. I think that, I, I think that there's a real difficulty, um, in part because of the ideology mm. of the press for a long time, yeah. um, that we believe that institutions are neutral, which I think fundamentally misunderstands the role of institutions in a society. The role of the institution is, in fact, to uphold the, the cornerstone values of a society, right? And I think that one of the things we deal with, and we talk about, I talk about this for a moment in the book, is what, what do we do and how do we handle instances where we cannot be both speech absolutist and be human equality absolutist, right? What I mean by that is- What does that mean? Yeah. Well, was, well you know, the argument you would hear very often, well, well here's the thing, right? That, People use free speech to endanger the lives of other people routinely and all the time, right? And so if you pride yourself on being a free speech absolutist, then you say, well, what are we supposed to do? Trump wants to hold a hate rally. We have to put it on television, right? As yeah. opposed to yeah. saying, well, but, you know, we, our obligation as an institution of multiracial democracy is to uphold as a value a multiracial, multicultural democracy that all humans are equal and are entitled to freedom and liberty and justice, right? So therefore, we should not televise hate rallies, right? <laughs> because that would undermine that idea, right? And instead, we, I mean, literally live televised rallies where Donald Trump would bring families of people whose loved ones had been killed by illegal immigrants onto the stage, yeah. as if he was Hitler mm -hmm. parading around the victims of the Jews. Yeah. And we would broadcast this to millions of people, 
over and over and over and over again, right? That we were that we were party to the dehumanizing rhetoric that he was using to solidify his political movement. And that rhetoric literally cost people their lives. It's easy enough to not air those rallies and not platform Trump at this Is stage it? in the election. <laughs> I, I, I would think it's easy. <laughs> I, I, gotta talk I, to our friends at CNN. Not, I, I was going to say, I'll bet, you I, there's, gonna... I'll, I'll bet you there's some conversations. Do we do it or don't we? I don't think it's easy. I mean, I they just, it's just easy. Did it. I'm sorry. Yeah. It should they be easy, but I think, oh, yeah. God, that's my naivete. <laughs> anyway, the point I was going to make or the question I was going to ask before you both crushed my hope and faith in journalism um, was what do we then do? if he becomes the actual nominee, like what would be your recommendations for how to handle somebody like Trump if he actually becomes a GOP nominee? Well, I think that I, I actually truly don't think it changes very much if he's the nominee or not the nominee, right? Because I think hmm. that we have to make some clear decisions, right? You you do not, right? If we are, as journalists, we are facilitators of the public square, right? We're not gatekeepers. It doesn't. It, the world doesn't exist that way anymore, right? But we are facilitators. We are the ones trying to guide public conversation, right? We do not allow people to use the microphone in our hand to actively pour poison into the water stream, right? Like, I feel like we should be able to make that level of commitment. So I think that means that we do not, right? If someone is, uh, if someone has proven that they are in no way tethered to facts or reality, I don't think we put such a person on live television. Uh, again, I don't think that's a complicated idea, right? But we've made it a very complicated one, right? Uh, the person ranting on the street corner, I don't put them in live on television, right? And in terms of the content, the person on my street corner actually gets a lot more facts right than our former president. Mm -hmm. And so the it, it, so no, right? That we contextualize, that we explain, that, that this is not an argument that there's no means of interviewing the president or the former president. Um, that doesn't mean there's no way to contextualize him and his movement, right? But I, but again, no one should come to our media outlets and receive false information, right? And if yeah. there's, and so each time we are discussing and covering such a person, we have to. I think that has to be core. Right. We have to be contextualizing things. We have to be explaining them. And we cannot just provide platform for falsehoods and for dehumanizing rhetoric. That's about immigrants. It's about refugees in this race. It's particularly about transgender people and their health care. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked a lot about a town hall with former President Trump, but not long after that. Uh, Nikki Haley was given a town hall where she said a bunch of baseless things about transgender people and mental health. That is dehumanizing rhetoric that was broadcast to millions of people, right? We have like we have to play a role that is more than just putting a microphone in front of people's faces. We have to take seriously that if you come to our news organizations, there is a real cost in ever broadcasting something that is not true, right? Especially if that is something that is propaganda or rhetoric that dehumanizes or attacks a minority group and a, a historically or currently oppressed group, right? There's real, a, there's real cost to that. And I just think that like dispositionally, we don't take that seriously enough. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll broadcast all these attacks on the Jews and then we'll fact check that the Jews aren't really full of horns, right? Like as if that is somehow, and, and again, like I, I specifically choose like, Hyperbolic's not the word, right? But I specifically there choose something that we have clarity about 
Because the reality is we literally allow that to happen about transgender people and immigrants yeah. and crime in cities all the time, right? Where like insert politician gets to say whatever they want about such people. And then we're like, oh, but we fact checked it that actually Mexico isn't going to pay for the wall. And it's right. like, that's not what this is about. <laughs> this is so yeah. like, and, and so I think we have to have much more clarity about our role in facilitating the public square. Hmm. Uh, last thing, and, and then we'll let you go. You've been really generous with your time. Let's go back to that night in Grand Park that that uh, I referenced at the beginning, and that you start this book with. Uh, you write that that for millions it was a night of hope. I said it was a hopeful night, and and I guess my question is, that's me as a middle aged white guy saying it was a hopeful night, and, and I wonder what you and you were what like sixteen, seventeen then? Yeah, I was like, yeah, I yeah. was like eighteen. Right. So, so what did you think at the time, and and are you surprised by how quickly it all went south? Well, look, I think it was unquestionably an inspiring night, right? And and look, I think there was hope, right? But I do think that. One thing that is interesting, I remember conversations I was having back then, or also conversations I was just having with a lot of black Americans, right? Um, there was a divide that a lot of black Americans truly thought, and we, this still shows up in one of the reasons black Americans were at the time and continue to be very loyal and defensive of the Obamas. You mm -hmm. see this in the polling. M many black Americans were convinced he would be assassinated, right? Oh my like, gosh, I remember the, that so clearly. Right? Like, That's there what were a lot everybody of, like, was saying. Yeah. Like the meat, like the media at large was all like, "This is amazing!" And if we defeated racism, and the black people were all like, "Are they going to let this He's guy live?" Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so yeah, I think absolutely. that that spoke to right. And thank God the forty fourth president was not assassinated. Right? And to be clear, I'd say that of any president of any association, I don't think that would be a good thing to have a president assassinated. Right? So obviously, thank God President Obama survived his terms. Right? But in so much as there were two competing outlooks of what was to come. The idea that you had a chunk of the populace and a chunk of a populace that experiences racism and bigotry going, they're going to kill this guy, and a bunch of other people being like, have we fixed racism? It landed much closer <laughs> to that first group than the second one. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. we, as it turns out, we extra had not fixed racism. <laughs> and I think that that, and, and I think that that, as we encounter other moments of excitement, of hope, and of pride, we should have communal pride. We should be excited when we do things that we previously didn't necessarily think were possible. Right? I do think we have to keep in mind. <laughs> what that what might come afterwards, and I think that's where knowing our history is important too, right? At every point in our history, when there has been what has felt like of what really has been a significant step forward, we've almost always immediately seen a big uh, push backward. The latest book from Wesley Lowry is called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. You should buy it and read it. It's deeply, deeply thoughtful. Wesley, thanks a lot. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you. I had completely forgotten about that, but mm -hmm. he's absolutely right. I mean, just about every black person, especially older black people, yeah. after Obama was elected, they were saying they are going to kill this man yeah. uh, with this amorphous they. But um, yeah. it also reminds me of um, after, you know, the murder of George Floyd and the conviction and you mm -hmm. know people thinking, ah, oh, this is a thing. Um there was a similar vibe where yeah. people were saying, okay, there's all, there's the air quote reckoning. Let's right. just sit back and see how long this lasts. And sure enough, yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, 
there's been a decline in support for Black Lives Matter. There's been even more sort of outward racism. We're seeing this, um, a lot of racist rhetoric, as we said at the top, um, in the upcoming election. And and I'm really gl- glad that Wesley brought up, you know, the way that some of the candidates are talking about transgender folks. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, maybe some of these candidates don't feel as comfortable, you know, openly bashing black people or immigrants anymore or Muslim people anymore. But they're totally game to trash another group that mm-hmm. is disenfranchised and yeah. disadvantaged and yeah. all those things. So totally. it's a pattern. Yeah. Buy that book. It's a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, let us know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right, this is the point in the program uh, where we do a little news. Uh, Kimberly Adams, what do you got? Um, this is something that folks have probably like seen flashing on the headlines or heard uh, on your favorite public radio station, of which I'm sure you're listening. Um, but I also wanted to talk about it in a little bit broader context, the fact that Russia has pulled out of the mm. grain deal that it had with Ukraine slash the UN slash Turkey helped negotiate it. Um, this was a deal to let Ukraine, which is one of the major grain producers in the world, continue to export grain through the Black Sea despite the conflict where there's a Russian blockade of most of the stuff coming out of that port, of those ports. And in, you know, there, there are people who get on the ships and check the cargo to make sure it's just grain and all those other things. Russia's suspended this deal. It actually expired and they're not renewing it because there are arguing that their side of the deal is not being honored in terms of what they're supposed to be allowed to export or that things are being slow walked or whatever. This is going to have even a temporary delay is going to have meaningful impacts, uh, meaningful effects in the lives of people in a lot of different parts of the world where there are real, you know, Mm -hmm. food insecurity issues, people are starving. And I, you know, that's sort of the number one fallout of this. But also, if we remember back to the early days of this war, 
the fact of these blockades and the war affecting grain shipments was something else that factored into sort of the, you know, global inflation and the yeah. increase in food prices. And so even if there's a temporary delay, there could potentially be knock-on effects in terms of food prices, how that affects inflation. And as we learned from earlier rounds of this, even if it doesn't in practice, that's not going to necessarily stop companies from pricing it in. Mm -hmm. So For sure. just flagging it and uh, it's worth paying attention to that going on at the moment. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, mine's a little, uh, mine's even more weedy than that one, uh, but it's important <laughs> and, it, and it's definitely going to be one of those where, where the fecal matter hits the rotary device uh, next year when this policy comes out. And, and Secretary Yellen talked about it a little bit when I was in China with her, and she talked about it again this week on Bloomberg. So the Biden administration is considering and will probably roll out next year. Uh, limitations on uh, outbound investment. That's that's the buzzword for what this policy is going to be called. So the Biden administration is going to limit what investments American companies and hedge funds and institutional investors can make in Chinese companies. Yellen said uh, on a Bloomberg interview uh, yesterday, I guess, right, Monday, that they're going to really narrowly tailor it. It's only going to be new investments, so existing investments in China won't be affected. But new investments, and probably only on Chinese semiconductor plants and quantum computing and artificial intelligence. But believe you me when I tell you that the American investment sector writ large is going to be complaining. So that's number one uh, on that one. The other people that are going to be complaining a lot are the Chinese, because they will say you are trying to delay our economic development. And Secretary Yellen will say, as she said to me and as she said in China and as she has said publicly many times, no, 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 this is all about national security. And squaring the circle between what we see as enhancing and protecting our national security and what the Chinese see as, a, as a, an economic threat is, is going to be really, really hard. But um, next year... 2024, at some point, look for something called outbound investment. And that's going to be the policy that they're working on right now. It's going to be a mess. Oof. All right. Yeah, big mess. Well, that's it for the news. Let us do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. So we talked about uh, last week, we talked about insurers leaving some states, Florida and California were the ones we mentioned, um, because of climate risk and the natural disasters that a warming planet brings uh, and what the states might do about it. And we got this. Hey, my name's Alana and I'm calling from Santa Cruz. Those of us in California who live in the Wooly, that's wildland urban interface mm -hmm. to you, have been forced uh, into relying on California's fair plan for some years now by the exit of insurance companies offering homeowner insurance policies in fire-prone areas, basically the whole ex-urban state at this point. The FAIR plan is a state-organized insurance provider of last resort for the fire insurance portion of a homeowner's policy, and I do mean last resort as the price is usually two to three times the price of the standard insurance, and you still have to purchase a homeowner's policy for everything else. Anyway, thought you ought to know. Thanks for making me smart. That's me. Yeah, no, that's good. that's good context. You know, and home ownership is so so difficult to achieve right now. Anyway, mm -hmm. with you know int uh, interest rates and just lack of affordability more broadly, lack of supply, and now you're layering on 
more and more expensive insurance. Yeah. It just feels like it's putting home ownership even further and further out of reach for a lot of people, um, especially in these states. Um, and I think I saw, you know, just earlier this week, another insurer is reducing the amount that it's uh, willing to yeah. back policies in Florida. So this is going to continue. Um, so, yeah. Okay, one more. If you listened to last Friday's chaotic <laughs> show, oh boy, um, where a fire alarm started going off in my building, thankfully only due to a thunderstorm, not because of an actual fire. Um, here's one of the many messages we got about it. Hi guys, this is Chase. I live in Ecuador where we have earthquakes. My Android phone even has an earthquake alarm on it. And when an earthquake is sensed, the alarm goes off and gives me a good 10 to 15 second head start to get out the door. Saturday morning, I was listening to Friday's crazy podcast while I was shaving. Suddenly, I heard a loud alarm go off on my phone and I didn't waste a second. I grabbed the phone and in my bathrobe and covered in shaving cream, I bolted for the door. I was halfway into the carport when I realized it was the fire alarm in Kimberly's apartment. Oops, how's that for a learned response? Life in the ring of fire, you're keeping me on my toes. Thanks for making me smart. Oh, man. I'm so I sorry, that Chase. That's great. That's great. <laughs> when you get to the carport, look around and be like, why is no one else outside? Oh, man. I, I, I will tell you, I don't often listen to this podcast or to the radio show that I host. I just don't for whatever reason. I went back and listened to Friday that moment. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. All right. So I watched the video and you can really? see me being like, uh, oh, God, yeah. no. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Man. Oh boy. Uh, we will end, as we always do, with the Make Me Smart question or the answer to it more accurately, because the question is, what is something you thought you knew, later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes to us from Peter Atwater. He is a professor of economics, and he is more particularly the one who coined the term K-shaped recovery, also the author of the forthcoming book, The Confidence Map. Early in my career, I thought that appearing to be confident meant being confident. If I stood up tall and spoke crisply, I would feel more in command of the situation. Through my research, I've learned that what makes us confident isn't our appearances, but our feelings, especially our feelings of certainty and control. Rather than focusing on the performative aspects of confidence, we need to spend more time focusing on becoming better at what we're doing. Here, turning to others who may have been through a similar experience can be especially helpful. We should also make sure we have the tools and training we need to find ways to practice or rehearse what we're going to do. While practice may not make perfect, feeling more in control will make us feel more relaxed and will give us greater bandwidth when the unexpected inevitably happens. Amen. Yep. Yeah. I mean, last Friday was a perfect example That's of right. that. Thankfully, we've done this podcast enough times that even with <laughs> That's right. a, a little hitch, we were able to continue. So, yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah. Um, but we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question, regardless of whether or not you're writing an economic book. Uh, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Today's episode of Make Me Smart was produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Becca Weinman. Our intern is Neela Farshabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. 
there you have it. Made it through with no alarms. There you have it. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.